This is hell. Behind every great fortune lies a great crime, because this is hell. We're we here in the United States are. are are pretty clueless when it comes to U.S. foreign policy and how the U.S. military operates overseas. Throughout the forever war, or the ongoing war on terror, and don't kid yourself that war is still going on and will be into the foreseeable future, we've been kept pretty clueless as to what's taking place at the numerous sites where the U.S. is still engaged in war. And by that, I mean not only engaged in a shooting war, but engaged in the supplying of weapons and intelligence, both of which lead to the deaths of innocent civilians in places like the nation we will be discussing today, Somalia. But here's the thing. We do not really know what is happening in Somalia. Even journalists who go to Somalia to find out have difficulty learning what's taking place there. Even Locals appear to be uninformed. Sure, some business interests there can cannot wait for the U.S. return since President Trump recalled troops from Somalia as one of his last actions while in office. But that didn't stop the Biden administration from getting re-involved in the war as they now have reportedly redeployed 500 troops to Somalia. We will try to figure out what the hell is going on in Somalia with someone who is trying to figure that out, too, when in a few minutes we will have the return of multi-award-winning freelance foreign correspondent and investigative journalist Amanda Sperber, who returns to This Is Hell to discuss her new article at The Baffler, Prelude to a Redeployment, Listening for Signs of the Americans in Kismayo, Somalia. Amanda's work has prompted changes to military policy in the past, open congressional letters signed by leading House members, reports by organizations including Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, and Air Wars, and shifted narratives on state building and U.S. foreign policy. Since Amanda started reporting on U.S. airstrikes in Somalia, the military admitted its first civilian casualty since it began carrying out airstrikes in 2007 and instituted a civilian casualty reporting protocol. Amanda won the Kurt Shork Memorial Award in the freelancer category for her investigations in Somalia. She also is a recipient of the One World Media Award Popular Features category for her coverage of sexualized violence in South Sudan's civil war. Amanda was on our show back in 2019 to discuss her article at The Nation inside the secretive U.S. air campaign in Somalia. You can follow Amanda on Twitter at Hisperbowl. That's H-Y-S-P-E-R-B-O-L-E. Hisperbowl, I guess. Find out more about Amanda and see all of her work at her website, amandasperber.com. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, live streaming and podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Dan Hill. Dan, what's new by you? Hi, Chuck. Not much. We had a cookout at Loyola Beach. It was real nice. Oh, really? When did you, this occur? Last weekend? Yeah, that was on Sunday. What'd you grill? We grilled all kinds of stuff. Um, kufta and shish tawuk. Look at you. Kind of stuff. The um, cicadas got kind of out of control at dusk, though. They're all over the place. Where are you getting your food from? Uh, I guess that probably was all from Morris. Oh, a Morris Market? Chicken, chicken and ground beef at Morris. Yeah, that's the go-to. Yeah, uh, Devon Market. You ever been over there? Yeah, that's great. That's where I get my pelmeni. Look at you. Yeah. Look at you. Loving all the different kinds of 
Eastern European uh, dumplings. Those are fantastic. They're good. They are. I love those. When you cannot have a pierogi, a pelmeni will definitely do. That's what they say. (laughs) That is what they say. I have that as a bumper sticker on my (laughs) car. It's a load-bearing bumper sticker. I am counting the hours until we leave for our two-week family vacation at Cottage on Lake, and I'm crossing my fingers that neither myself or my uncommon law wife test positive for COVID later today because if either of us do, we won't be able to go on vacation, and that would completely suck, especially after what I've been through with my health this year. So more important, I guess, than my fear of COVID ruining our vacation. Dan, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is, the consequences of which questionable action are you running from? (laughs) The consequences of which questionable action are you running from? We got a lot of really great responses and some on Twitter as well. The person with our favorite uh, answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever this is hell swag you want. The this is hell t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering, and the face mask. The coffee mug, the trucker's cap, the winter beanie, or toque if you prefer, as well as the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your very kind support. And we need your support now more than ever because it turns out Paying our staff a living wage is admirable but not so great for our bottom line. So please, show your support for This Is Hell and our staff receiving the bare minimum of what can be considered a living wage by either subscribing to our weekly Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell or by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support to see all the ways you can help out your friends here at This Is Hell. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email chuck at thisishell.com. Uh, we're a little bit late, and I'm probably not going to get a chance to check my email. Maybe I will during Jeff. But you can also email it to us during the show at thisishellradio at gmail.com. But we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner, as we do most weeks, following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. During this week's moment, Jeff takes us to the super true town that was the model for the mythical Lake Wobegon. And if you don't know what Lake Wobegon was, ask your parents, they'll tell you. And then you'll never have wanted to have that knowledge in your brain again. Dan will be sharing more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our conversation with Amanda on the secret of U.S. deployment in Somalia. Again, the question from hell is the consequences of which questionable action you took are you running away from? The questionable the consequences of which questionable action you took are you running away from? Again, you can email us with your guest or topic suggestions, constructive or even de- destructive criticism if you'd like it. Chuck at thisishell.com. And if you do, we'll likely read your email on air. And if, you ha- if we have your suggested guest on the show, we will thank you personally during that interview with your suggested guest. We got an email from Chad F. who writes, Hi, I enjoyed your interview with economist James K. Galbraith last year. I was surprised that he admitted that uh, modern monetary theory, or MMT, was just Keynesian economics with a new name. Keynes was a, a Fabian eugenicist whose theories and practice impoverished billions while elevating the 1%. I suggest that you interview a f- true free market economist in response, not some corporate shill, but one of the Austrian school that opposes corrupt government capture by the business elite. Thanks, Chad. Chad. 
So I was surprised Chad actually said he enjoyed the interview with Galbraith, being that he called James a corporate shill. MMT is one of uh, those topics that so many are for or against. There seems to be a very binary discussion around MMT. Not that I'm saying that Chad is employed in that. But the reason we chose uh, James to be on the show is because he not only supports MMT, but during the conversation with him, he was also critical of MMT, being not as revolutionary as many of its supporters might believe. And we've had, had a, a lot of compliments about that interview from April 2021 with James, an interview you can find at thisishell.com when you search on Galbraith. So I asked Chad who, would be, who he would suggest as a true free market economist to discuss MMT. Chad replied, the economist Michael Hudson whose work you can find at michael-hudson.com. Chad explains, I don't do left and right, but I think there is common ground regarding corporate capture of government. The last thing a capitalist wants is a true free market. Love your show. Thanks for everything you do, Chad. So the economist, Michael Hudson, like the ICIJ, International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, investigative journalist Michael Hudson, has appeared on This Is Hell several times. The economist Michael Hudson was on the show several times back in the early 2000s. But after a while, uh, that economist Michael Hudson was done with getting up early on Saturday mornings to do live on-air interviews as up until July 2019, three years ago, we were only on Saturday mornings, and we only do live interviews. But thanks to Chad for reminding us of the economist Michael Hudson, because now that we stream live on Mondays, Tuesdays, and Wednesdays, maybe the economist Michael Hudson would be willing to return to the show for a conversation on, among other things, MMT, because he was always a fantastic guest. And thanks to the investigative journalist Michael Hudson, who last week helped connect us with people at ICIJ to discuss the Uber files. We really appreciate it. And Chad, I appreciate you saying I don't do left and right because the political spectrum is not limited to those binary choices or even the three-cornered hat that when you throw in uh, centrist or independent. From what I've learned from our guests over our 26 years of being on air is the political spectrum goes in every direction, all 360 degrees like a sphere or our ever-expanding universe. And to limit it to right and left limits our political imagination, which is likely what those who only see right and left want us to do. So again, thanks, Chad, for pointing out that you don't do left and right because I don't do that either. Again, you can email us at chuck at thisishell.com. And if you do, we'll likely read your email on air as we did with Chad's just now. Coming up, we'll try to get to the bottom of why the Biden administration has redeployed the U.S. military to Somalia. We'll also tell you what's happening on this week's Patreon podcast, as well as the next couple of weeks' Patreon podcasts, exclusively for subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell. We'll have more of your answers to this week's question from hell. Jeff Dorchin will be delivering this week's moment of truth, and we will tell you who we have scheduled to be on our show when we return in mid-August. All of that coming up here on This Is Hell, live from the United States, where the law is far too often the crime. This is hell. Unbelievably, the Trump administration did something good just as it was leaving office. They recalled U.S. troops fighting in Somalia, but that didn't stop the Biden administration from promising to redeploy those troops just last week. Here to help us get a handle on what the U.S. is up to in Somalia and why multi-award-winning foreign correspondent 
and investigative journalist Amanda Sperber returns to This Is Hell to discuss her new article at The Baffler, Prelude to a Redeployment, Listening for Signs of the Americans in Kismayo, Somalia. Amanda, welcome back to This Is Hell. Thanks so much for having me. Um, and just to flag, this is uh, my Twitter handle is Hyperbole. Oh, I was trying to figure out exactly. Why how I, I do not. I don't. I don't actually care about this. This is more like just. To, I was like, why doesn't he get the pot? I do. I did get the pun, but I was just. I was tongue-tied after drinking some coffee, so I apologize. Am I? It's all good. Am I? Um, am I getting the okay, name of the? I feel like I should change it because it sounds like I'm endorsing hyperbole. <laughs> so, uh, um, am I getting the name of the town in Somalia correct? But, did you say Kismaya? Yes. Yeah, good to go. I didn't. I didn't hear that. The only thing that stood out was the uh, was the Twitter thing. But also, I don't actually care. I'm, this is largely TSA, and I'm not a princess about this. <laughs> you start uh, writing back in March of this year that uh, it's my first time in Kismayo since I started covering U.S. military operations in Somalia nearly four years ago, which was shortly after the last time you know we had you back on the show in uh, oh, wow, yeah. 2019. So yeah, and you report you report that uh, the United States you reported. Back then, in that story, the story that we covered back in 2019, the United States Af- Africa Command is the only military actor that acknowledges conducting air and drone strikes in this region of Somalia, known as Lower and Middle Shabelle. So last week, uh, Vox, of all places, reported that President Joe Biden pledged to end the forever wars in the Middle East. He withdrew U.S. forces from Afghanistan last year and has announced that the United States is no longer at war. As he wrote in advance of his trip this week to Israel and Saudi Arabia, I will be the first president to visit the Middle East since 9-11 without U.S. troops engaged in a combat mission there. Vox added, but the rhetorical contortion of no U.S. troops engaged in a combat mission is a little different from being able to simply say that there is no American military presence. That's because the U.S. still has troops in Iraq, in Syria, in Jordan, in Saudi Arabia. Turkey and Yemen, and the U.S. military is, among other things, advising on counterterrorism, and the Pentagon keeps more than 700 personnel in Niger and thousands in Djibouti. The U.S. also deploys air drone strikes and special operations forces against targets across the Middle East and Africa without much accountability or oversight, and in May of 2022, Biden agreed to send about 500 U.S. troops to Somalia. So under Biden, how has the ability to figure out whom the U.S. is targeting in wars, how has that changed in any way, especially in Somalia? Is the U.S. any more or less uh, secretive when it comes to war under Biden? Um, I'm trying to think. That's a good question. As far as I can tell, um, I don't believe so. I mean, I, I guess the idea that as far as I can tell kind of speaks for itself. Um, I, I'm not a, you know, an analyst on this. I'm a journalist. Uh, so I, I, I'm more focusing on what I see and hear, as you can see from, you know, what I wrote, but from my experience in Somalia and from communicating with Africans, um, et cetera, like I've, I've not really seen a change and I do, you know, something that I did find, um, uh, interesting, I guess, for lack of a better word, um, or notable, um, was that even as the AFRICOM commander had been testifying in front of the House Armed Services Committee um, in the middle of March saying, um, where I I would like to redeploy to Somalia, I think it makes it that it's what makes the most sense. However, I'm, I'm like waiting to hear from my superiors. 
even when he said that, um, when I was I was in Kismayo in southern Somalia, um, and planes were already flying back in. So they were essentially, as far as I know, um, they were essentially redeploying already, which, you know, is pretty secretive, presumably. So do you think that he was being misleading in his assessment of what was taking place in Somalia at that time? Um, so something I really want to emphasize in this is, is, is that um, what I wrote was a piece of, like, was about my experience. Um, and, you know, there were a few people that took what I wrote to be, um, I'm trying to figure out the way to say this. Because uh, I do I do think this all matters, these, these differences, both uh, in journalism and in covering quote unquote secret wars, because I suspect that Afri some, a place like AFRICOM would argue that they were not being misleading because it's possible they were bringing in stuff that wasn't directly related to the redeployment. So a lot of this wording on this gets gets very gets very tricky. Um, so do you see what I do you see what I'm saying? And and this is not a defense of of Africom, but as much to say that like a lot of this stuff is takes a lot to parse out. Um, so I don't know if he was being misleading because it's possible what was on those like what I was told from people was that they were redeploying already, that what they were bringing in was stuff to redeploy. Um, I was told that from multiple sources. I was told that by people there um, who watched the planes come in. I saw planes come in, et cetera. But that said, if he's talking to the house, if the commander's talking to the house, it's possible that they were bringing in medical supplies. Like, I don't know what was on those planes. And I, like, I, I do want to emphasize that. And I, I think the report makes that, that clear, that part of this coverage is not knowing what's happening, but knowing that something is happening. And that's kind of the experience of reporting on this. Right. You're just trying to be as accurate as possible in your reporting, which you are doing. And you write in your Baffler story, I'm pretty sure I've already been here at Kismayo, uh, Somalia. But that was before I was on this beat with my ears perked for the Americans, the word the Americans. Usually I work for Mogadishu, the national capital, talking to Somali officials and civilians from a hotel compound inside something like five layers of HESCOs, the colloquial term for these huge beige and mesh container fortifications you see in the movies. So when talking to Somali officials and civilians from a hotel compound, is there a particular perspective shared by these uh, officials and civilians to whom you have access? Do you need to go elsewhere like Kismayo to get varying views uh, of the war? Oh, um, I don't know if the views are that different, to be honest. Um, but I, th but regardless, like the, um, I, so I don't know if the views are different, but what's happening is different, especially in areas because the U.S. has a small, and this was already publicly known, um, that the U.S. has a small base in Kismayo. So what I found was that to some degree, I did feel closer to uh, the U.S. military operations in Somalia when I was in Kismayo, because even though their presence is smaller, it's more kind of immediate and we're, you know, kind of sharing a compound. Whereas in Mogadishu, um, like there's just a lot, the U.S. presence is um, 
way more it's it's larger but it's like way more separated and kind of separate compounds and then they do most of their operations and about a 40 minute plane uh helicopter ride away or probably less than 40 minutes uh from a place called Valadogle. um so that was my feeling when i was in Mayo. i don't the i mean generally the feeling from somali officials and civilians is that and I think people are also trying to be polite to me, but that people believe that they do not like Al-Shabaab, that the Americans are well-intended, um, but, you know, ineffective, um, I would say. So I think people are, and that's possible, they're just being polite, but I would say that's generally the view is, is that, you know, it's that they're missing the... Um, I was going to say the forest through the trees, but that's maybe the opposite of the problem. In this case, maybe they're uh, focusing too much on the trees and, and missing the forest. That's a really good, great point to make. You also write, I also cover the use of American-made and supplied weapons that recently killed kids in the north of Somalia and dysfunction in international state building of the National Somali Army. I write this not to share my CV, but to give you a sense of the situation here. So at some point while I was out for two months following a surgery I recently had, the New York Times, they ran an article about how the U.S. was not engaged in a war in Yemen because while it was supplying intelligence to the Saudi backside, while it was giving U.S.-made supplies and weapons to one of the warring factions, the Times said it was not directly engaged with troops on the ground. The intelligence, weapons, and supplies did rise to the level of actually, didn't, in their opinion, rise to the level of actually being engaged in the war. So by your estimation, as somebody who's a journalist on the ground, does providing supplies and weapons and aside engaged in a war constitute U.S. involvement in that war? Because the Times suggests that's not the case, the, that the U.S. is not engaged in war unless there are boots on the ground. I mean, I think whether or not you want to focus on what engagement means is kind of a technicality. Um, like, I mean, yeah, I, I, yeah, I think it's, um, I, I think that kind of stuff is, a bit of a technicality um and I, it wouldn't be for me to say um like what it means to be engaged and i think uh different people have different definitions of that um i don't mean to sound like i'm skirting the question that's just like you know the honest truth about i think a lot of this stuff is that part of the problem is that there's this kind of almost focus on well, what does it mean? Are we engaged or not? When it's it's less about the language and more about like, well, what are we doing? Which is supplying weapons. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. I do. It's that's that's a very good way to parse the uh, parse my question. That, that that makes a lot of sense to me. So, in your opinion, why do U.S. military activities in places like Somalia? Why do they not warrant the attention of more mainstream corporate establishment, you know, media outlets? I mean, this week the New York Times had a front page story on parents babbling to babies is a cultural universal so it's not like they didn't have the space to cover what's happening in some oh i like that piece <laughs> I, I thought it was lovely i did too but for front page maybe you know style section maybe i don't know oh section. i thought it was like really humanizing <laughs> and beautiful actually um i don't so i don't i mean i think there's a degree to which at least in somalia i mean the u.s military um 
uh, I guess, like, it's so big, like, it is, you know, so enormous, like, it's one of, like, the biggest employers in America, I could be, that very much could be wrong, um, but, like, it's just so big that I think the amount of what is going on in Somalia would not necessarily justify constant coverage, if that makes it, unfor- I mean, unfortunately, I mean, like, I think given the size of our military and, and what we do um, in so many places, um, you know, there's a degree to which, and and the scale of what's happening in Somalia is much smaller than, you know, what happens in Afghanistan, um, Syria, and other places. So I think you do have to, like, kind of keep that in mind. And, um, you know, those stories also certainly get more attention, but, like, less so it's all kind of I think proportional um so I don't know if I feel like the mainstream media doesn't pay enough attention to be honest I guess in terms of just like considering the the reality of how big our footprint is and what's happening there um I do you think that um you know, something that a lot of the public, the American public doesn't fully realize is, you know, and this happens in South America, it happens for decades all over, is like the extent to which U.S. kind of policy, which is enforced through, um, you know, in part through weapon supplies um, and also just money, like weapons to military, sorry, money for militaries, um, and as well as like state building that uh, props up certain uh, ideas of what makes a quote unquote country, um, how much all of that, um, it shapes the world that we live in and contributes to um, a dynamic that is, you know, becoming to a degree like more and more untenable in a lot of places or at least has not demonstrated that it's a path to um sustainability and like a happy life for a lot of people you write of your staying at the airport in jubiland where u.s special forces are also being housed albeit in an adjacent hotel to yours you write i do see the americans at dinner at my hotel one night though they seem to know their presence is a statement so what was the statement you believe the americans were making with their presence in somalia Oh, so in that instance at dinner, it was just kind of funny because this group of like kind of strapping young men came in um, and I felt like, you know, it's kind of like when you come to a party and you know that like people are looking at you. I was like getting that kind of energy from them. They weren't being, um, there wasn't a lot of bravado. It was more just like they seemed to be aware that like, like I felt like I was not the only person who noticed them, um, but they were not, um, they weren't being like loud, obnoxious Americans. Um, it was more just kind of the opposite. The fact that I felt like they were kind of aware that like they were kind of all coming into this new area and they were just in like gym clothes and stuff, but just seems kind of aware that like the other people there had kind of all like flagged them and like we knew who they were and like kind of, do you know what I mean? It's almost like when you see a celebrity or something and you're not going to say hi to them, but you know that they know that, you know, kind of thing. Um, so it was, that was more the dynamic that I that I meant and in terms of the U.S. 
the kind of statement that it thinks it's making, if that was your question. I mean, I think that they think that they're helping. Um, and I think Somalis believe generally that they're trying to quote unquote help. I think, you know, whether or not it's working is, um, you know, would be up for Somalis to say. You also point out that the president of Jubaland, who everyone calls Madobe, is the former leader of a group at one point aligned with al-Shabaab, the fundamentalist insurgent group the United States is fighting in Somalia, and who maintain control over some 70% of the southern and central parts of the country. Now, Madobe, uh, he allegedly has a terrific relationship with the United States. The Americans have the best ally in the war on terror, and uh, Ahmed Adobe, a former Jubaland official, tells me over WhatsApp. Again, Madobe, a U.S. ally now, is in charge of a group that was once aligned with the fundamentalist insurgent group the U.S. is currently fighting al-Shabaab. So what uh, should Madobe's one-time allegiance to al-Shabaab, what should that reveal to us about him or the war in Somalia when his group can switch from being part of the insurgents who the U.S. is fighting and then leave that alliance to join the U.S. side in that same war? I mean, I think what it reveals is is quite important, which is um, the fact that, uh, like, killing people is not necessarily, like, the, the people who are being targeted um, are not necessarily, like, unreformable uh, villains. Um, and that's, and, you know, like, it so is, it just, to me, kind of, I mean, demonstrates the obvious, like, um, you know, if you, a lot of the times that I've spoken to, like, Al-Shabaab defectors and stuff, um, you know, they say that most people in Al-Shabaab, if you offer them a job, they would just as soon do that. Like, most people are not, like, scary. Most of these people are not, like, scary and need to be killed. Do you know what I mean? Yes, I do. I do. Because that, because it comes back to the framing of the war on terror and people being, quote unquote, evil when they are clearly not people who are, you know, people just aren't evil. You write when I, well, it's most, what, you write that when I got back from my most recent Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, <laughs> that's your statement, not mine. But I think, yeah, that like you, you know, the decision to execute someone without trial um, has been made quite a bit. Um, and that like, especially... Yeah, like, you know, the idea that these airstrikes are not, tar- are not targeted to people that have, al- that have already been, like, judged guilty. They're killing fighters. And if a fighter, a top-level fighter like Madobe, can then soon, can now be leading a government that the U.S. works closely with and supports a state government, then, like, what does that say about the wider situation? Exactly. And you write that when I got back from my most recent trip to Somalia, an employee with an international peace-building mission told me via signal that the institution for which they work has no interest in understanding who al-Shabaab really is. The staffer told me that the organization is more of a fundamentalist insurgent group than any sort of major player in the global war on terror. But no one wants to talk about that, they said. So so what's the difference between being in, uh, between an organization being more of a fundamentalist insurgent group than any sort of major player in the global war on terror. And why would nobody want to talk about that? Because, again, in the past, we all saw these reports that al-Shabaab was in allegiance with al-Qaeda, thus by implication al-Shabaab was seen as an adversary to the U.S. when it comes to the war on terror. So what's the difference uh, between those two different uh, classifications, and why would nobody want to talk about that? Got it. Um... 
I mean, I think that a few I'm trying to think. I mean, I have a lot of opinions on that. Sorry, it's just been kind of a long morning being very casual. Um, I don't know why nobody would want to talk about that. I think it's, you know, people are um, in their silos. Um, yeah, I think people are just in their silos, which is like they are told that something is this way. Um, if it cannot be this way, then um, like that would mean such a huge revamp and a huge lift that like they, you know, don't want to do the work. If that makes sense, like you fundamentally telling, you telling someone that the very like fundamentals of like how you structured a hundred billion trillion dollar situation is like resting on something that like isn't really like uh, real. Um, like the amount of overhaul that would be done, would be done, would be like mind blowing. And like people just want to kind of do their jobs and get paid and go to sleep. Um, so I think there's a degree to which there's kind of, um, I'm blanking on the word right now, but like uh, stasis, uh, I guess I'm forgetting the word, but um, you know, people are just kind of like sleep, you know, sleepwalking a little bit. Like it's hard to stay engaged on this. Um, and then I think the difference between uh, what I meant in terms of describing Al-Shabaab and, and is that like, what sort of a threat does it pose to the US, which I am not a legal expert, even in the slightest. Um, but just to say like, what is that? Uh, you know, there's a lot of legal law, um, international um, humanitarian law and like law of war uh, jargon that kind of uh, flushes out when someone is a legal target, like if they're tr presenting a threat to you. Um, and you know, the Vox article, I believe also mentions that, um, some experts and even, I think I forget who they quote, but they basically quote someone saying they don't think that Al-Shabaab presents a threat to the U S, um, directly. I think that others would argue that Al-Shabaab presents a direct, a direct threat to U S allies, U S interests. Um, and that also if like. Al Shabaab saw me walking down the street in Somalia. They might kidnap me because of who I am. Um, so it's pop, you know, I think I'm not saying it's to like, yeah, I, I'm, it's something I'm kind of always trying, trying to work out. Um, and I don't think that there's a, a direct answer. Um, but I think, you know, in, in Somalia itself, there's been a much wider conversation about how it makes way more sense to negotiate with a group like Al Shabaab. Um, and I think, you know, the Somali government has also not necessarily fully upheld itself as a um, upstanding enterprise, as as few governments have, um, and also works closely with Al-Shabaab. So I think it's, you know, kind of difficult to figure out where, uh, what what ends and, and what begins, is I guess uh, all this to say. So uh, in your opinion... What? Oh, I didn't know we were live right now. Oh, yeah, sure. We're live streaming all the time. Yeah, all the time. Oh, goodness. Yeah, that's okay. Don't worry about it because uh, we just don't want to. We've had issues and talked to people in the past uh, who've been appear who have appeared on different shows where the show is post-produced or, you know, and it gets to the point where the person's message is changed. And so I don't want that to happen with our show. So that's why we always do everything live. But in, in any case, oh. uh, it, when it comes to uh, the Trump administration, towards the end of the Trump administration, the decision to pull troops out of Somalia, 
You had been critical of the Trump administration's policy towards Somalia earlier in that administration. Why do you think that the Trump administration decided late in his term in office to leave Somalia? I mean, I think that the idea was that he could then say, oh, we finished with Somalia, basically, and just could say, like, you know, that's done with, we pulled out. I think it was pretty superficial. Um, it was also, I mean, I, I, I don't know what, you know, this is, I think, another complicated question, which is once you're heavily engaged in a place, whatever engagement means to you um, in this case, but once you're heavily involved in a place, whether you're supplying weapons or working on the ground or involved in their state building pro project, all the things of which the U.S. is actively doing in Somalia to varying degrees, if you abruptly withdraw, what does that mean? Um, and that's not to say that, I, I honestly don't have an opinion on that, like truly, um, because I think it's difficult, you know, like when Trump pulled out, Somalia was mired in this huge election dispute that got very, very tense. And at one point, a few months later, it got a bit violent for a bit. Um, and the U.S. withdrawal at that moment um, was not, was people, people were like, this is not going to help. Um, and that might seem counterintuitive. Um, but I think these issues get, get pretty naughty. Um, but my understanding is that he just sort of wanted to say like, okay, well, I closed out Somalia, that's solved. Um, and, and yeah, so I think, I guess that's my thought on that. Uh, you also point out that how, how you asked a South African security contractor who was working with the Somali special forces or maybe the Jubaland special forces to build out another base on the airport about, uh, about the planes. He chuckled and said with a heavy Afrikaans accent, they're bringing in their toys. The South African security uh, contractor was with a group of other Afrikaners who uh, were all employed by a security firm called Integrated Experts or something else ingeniously uh, vague. They said they didn't under entirely know which militia they were apparently helping to secure the state of Jubilon and stabilize the nation of Somalia over the course of weeks. I asked them enough uh, casually, coyly, and directly that I believe them. So what does that tell you about the war in Somalia when security contractors are being brought in but they seemingly don't know who they are supporting, who they're fighting for, or why. Well, those those contractors were not brought in by the U.S., um, as far as I know. Um, I mean, they, they easily, they could have been, but I don't, that's not my understanding. Um, so I guess just to say, like, I don't know if there was a direct relationship between those guys and, and the U.S., but I think it points out more generally if you're looking at private security um, and quote unquote state building and the quote unquote war on terror, which is, you know, something that the U.S. certainly um, employs a lot of private contractors, whether or not it was these guys in particular. Um, and I, you know, it does certainly tell you that like the, the guys on the private military are, um, well, I mean, it's what they are, like they're private military and they're private contractors. So they're not, um, you know, engaged on a uh, emotional, I guess, like on a national level, they're engaged to to do a job. So their job in this case, like, and so they probably don't know a lot about the political situation, the cultural situation, et cetera, which like, then if you're trying to quote unquote, build an army, um, obviously makes things pretty difficult if you don't speak the language and you have no kind of connection to the place where you are. 
And you read of the security contractors uh, that you spoke with. They were here for money uh, to do what they were told and to not get in trouble. So is this uh, some sort of is this a privatization of war, a global privatization of war that may have been spreading since uh, 2000, since the beginning of the war on terror? What to what degree is this? war different from one might think of a more traditional war? How much is this simply war for hire, for business, for profit? Sorry, I lost the end of your question there. I was just saying, how much is this simply a war for hire, for business, or for profit? How much does that differentiate it from what we might consider in our imagination as a more traditional war? Um, I mean, I, I I couldn't say speaking to Somalia specifically. I would definitely say that the uh, war on terror in general has, you know, as the South African contractors discussed, been a huge business. You also write that another time I joked with one of the security contractors about how much money the war on terror yeah, exactly. has made private security firms. We both laughed grimly, but it's true. Later on, the men came back from work on a particularly sweltering day, and one of them shouted, what a horrible effing country. I thought about how he was a product of where he's from, but that didn't excuse who he was. How, well, to, to, what, extent, to what extent do you think that is why there might be, and I know you already touched on this, uh, not so much reporting on uh, U.S. military presence around the world because it more and more does depend upon people who are security contractors and maybe not. And I know in this situation, these are South African security contractors that may not have been brought in by the by the United States. But do you think that the United States, depending more and more on security contractors around the world, does make it so there isn't as much reporting on them? After all, they're not U.S. soldiers, per se. Yeah, and that's definitely something that has been brought up in the media, that if you are employing someone from uh another country privately then it might get a blip in the news but um it certainly won't get the same kind of focus i mean that said i think that i could be wrong um i think if like there was a huge ambush on secure private security contractors that were employed by the u.s or something that would make news i could be wrong um, but I think on an individual level, um, yes, it certainly makes everything much more ind indirect in terms of how uh, the media picks up on it. You write, it felt ridiculous. I wanted to be a journalist. I sent a message to a colleague in the States writing of my plight that there were there was clearly some lengthier project or operation of some sort happening at night. I thought to myself, let me at least walk around a little bit, even though I knew anything happening probably wouldn't make a story, but I could live with myself if, if I tried a little harder. So I stepped out in my PJs and brought my phone. I, I didn't even lock the door. When it comes to the secretive nature of U.S. operations in Somalia, how much do you think that's aimed at the media, at journalists like you? How difficult does that make it for you to report on the story? Um, I don't know if it's aimed directly at media as much as it's just easier to do things without a level of scrutiny. So, I mean, I suppose then that's aimed at media, but I think, um, I think, yeah, I mean, yeah, I think it's just like, you know, if you can get away with doing things without people watching you, um, you know, often people would prefer that option. <laughs> so I don't know, you know, I think to me that says more almost about the power dynamics in play 
if you're in a country like Somalia where, you know, the U.S. is given kind of a lot of free reign, I, I guess, as, you know, according at least to Somalis, like, you know, Madobe, the president of the state, gives, um, gives the U.S. a lot of kind of bandwidth there. So I think to me, the fact that they operate kind of under the cover of darkness says more about says more about that than anything else. So um, you also point out that a few days after my nighttime adventure of walking around and trying to figure out what the circling planes were doing, what kind of planes were were coming in at night, uh, you write that that I uh, mentioned to a translator I'd hired that I was trying to do a story about the new base in Afmadao that the official had mentioned to me. I asked him if he'd heard anything about this quasi and confirmed rumor bluntly like it was gossip, like I was asking if he'd heard some spicy information. In response, his face fell. He cringed lightly and said something about how he couldn't believe more was coming. So some businessman that you encountered, encountered said there's, he gave you a sense that there's a money-making opportunity in uh, in uh, Somalia, but from your translator, there seems to be something to be feared about U.S. deployment to Somalia. Does this redeployment mean the war will become more violent and more deadly and more of a threat to the lives of Somalians, or isn't that necessarily a guarantee? Uh, it's, uh, um, I don't know um, if that's a guarantee. I think whenever there's more operations happening uh, on the ground, uh, and if there's more airstrikes, obviously, you know, like where there's more war, people, are, civilians are more at risk. Um, I don't know if the translator felt that the U.S. was to be feared as much as he felt that it was another complicated dynamic. And I, I do think there is a difference. Um you know, I, I don't think that people in, um, I think the media often kind of tries to simplify things into um, a situations where like the U.S. is either good or bad. Um, and I do think that, you know, Somalis can speak for themselves on how they think the U.S. has uh, impacted their their history. Um, the sense I got from this man I was speaking to was not, oh, no, they're coming back. They're going to kill us all, um, but was more like, oh, this is now a new inflection point. Um, and I think things are in a place where things are, you know, constantly or not maybe not constantly, but often messy and often volatile, like those new inflection points can rarely feel um, stabilizing if you're kind of living in that um, environment all the time and, and dealing with it and seeing it impact your family and stuff. You have been reporting in Somalia, from Somalia, for a very long time. It doesn't seem like U.S. policy has really changed from the George W. Bush administration to Obama to Trump to Biden. Over that time, there seems to have been bipartisan support for whatever that U.S. foreign policy is when it comes to the U.S. and Somalia. What do you think, after all of your years of doing reporting from Somalia, what do you think is the reason that the United States is so attracted, so interested in what ta what happens in Somalia to the point that it would deploy uh, military members to that country? I mean, the logic has always been that um, 
because, uh, Somalia, because uh, Somalia is a Muslim country and it simultaneously has a um, has a kind of uh, fragile government in the Western sense of the word. Um, that those two things could then lead to fundamentalism at, that then presents a threat to U.S. interests. Um, so that's always been the logic starting from when the U.S. first engaged in Somalia. Um, I mean, I think one of the problems is that simultaneously the U.S. engagement in Somalia, um, initially through the support of the uh, um, backing Ethiopian troops, which are kind of a main, uh, Somalia's neighbor, but also um, a place that has quite a, uh, a testy relationship with Somalia, the U.S. supporting Ethiopia to invade um, in 2006 and 2007 um, in the name of toppling a moderate Islamic group that had imposed some order then caused more mayhem, which then goes back to kind of the translator's reaction, which was that like, like they're trying to make things better. Maybe they're trying to make things better, but like you're just introducing more, more stuff. We have been speaking with multi-award winning foreign correspondent and investigative journalist Amanda Sperber. She's returned to This Is Hell to discuss her new article at The Baffler, Prelude to a Redeployment, Listening for Signs of the Americans in Kismayo, uh, Somalia. Amanda was on our show back in 2019 to discuss her article that was had just been posted at The Nation inside the secretive U.S. air campaign in Somalia. You can follow Amanda on Twitter at Heisperbowl. And I remember that the last time you were on, I, pronounced, I mispronounced it back then, too. Find out more about Amanda oh, no and, see, and see all of her work at her website, amandasperber.com. One last question question for you, Amanda. And as we do with all of our guests, our final question is always the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. You write of the translator's uh, cringing response to your question of the new base and Afmadal quote, I felt disgusted at his reply. I don't want to, I didn't want to be in my own skin. I should have been more considerate in how I broke the news to him that the Americans are returning. That uh, more could be coming, trying to walk it back, though uh, we'll never walk this back, of course. I mumbled quietly, I'm sorry. So while doing this kind of investigation, do you feel any sense, or you can use a different word if you'd like to, do you feel any sense of shame for being someone from the United States? Um, I feel a sense of shame of being from a place that is, uh, has had um, such a heavy footprint uh, in so much of the world, and that that footprint has often been um ill-informed um and i especially feel ashamed when i see myself kind of mirroring that what do you think is the most misunderstood thing about somalia by the u.s public because you know i was talking to a friend of mine uh, just last night i said we're going to be discussing somalia on tomorrow's show and they said isn't that a place where it's just like anarchy and no offense to anarchists who are listening in our audience but that's kind of the uh, idea that people have that it's just a, a place of complete chaos what is the most misunderstood about thing about somalia you think popularly what do I think is the most misunderstood thing? Um, I think that there is a sense of order. Um, it's a clan-based society. It's a um, 
uh, I guess that there is, I, I just would disagree that there's no, that there, it's anarchy. I think it's a, there is a sense of, of order um, and that, um, you know, I think also that Al-Shabaab is uh, such a facet, uh, such a part of society there, uh, not by choice. It's, it's a largely detested group. Um, people find them quite frustrating and extremely violent. Um, but that unfortunately for Somalia, Al-Shabaab is such a, a, is so linked to society there that you can't really like bomb it out. Um, and that, um, you know, most Somalis have to deal with Al-Shabaab to a degree. Many Somalis live in areas that have been controlled by Al-Shabaab for, you know, nearly decades at this point. So does that make them terrorists because they live there? You know, I, I don't think so. Um, and, and certainly, um, you know, they do not present as such. So I think that kind of dichotomy of like terrorists versus not terrorists is something that, that is pretty difficult. And it's also difficult for the media to get to parse because they look for kind of like perfect, um, kind of perfect civilian victims and, and things are more complicated than that often. Amanda, thank you so much for being back on our show. It's been three years since the last time we talked, and I'll make certain that it isn't three years to the next time we talk. I really, I really appreciate uh, your insight, your perspective. Thank you so much for being back on our show today. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. Take care. Pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996, this is hell. If what you just heard from Amanda Sperber on what the hell the U.S. is up to in the war in Somalia that was in some way enlightening or deprogrammed you from a previously held belief or understanding or made you feel like you actually learned something or to realize that, yes, this really is hell. Show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which streams live on Thursday at 10 a.m. Chicago time and is podcast shortly after at patreon.com slash this is hell. Or you can show your support for completely listener supported this is hell by visiting this is hell.com and just Clicking on support. Dan, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how some of our listeners are responding so far. As a recall, this week's question from hell is the consequences of which questionable action are you running from? Over there on Twitter, EF says, caring about stuff that I have no control over, allowing it to consume me, leading to finally breaking my now as of today former partner's patience whoa wow feel better wow wow still raw it is very raw and uh, somebody else had an issue with their relationship as well and with this question from hell so sebastian is working as kind of a yeah kind of a therapist a little relationship therapy it's probably for the best yes you'd think gregory k said the house on the rock the nightmares never end (laughs) thank you gregory and you can't just keep winning by saying the house on the rock gregory k (laughs) nurse c says Becoming a nurse. It's kind of a <laughs> wow. Norm MacDonald joke. Wow. Pen D says, I don't question my actions. Still running. That's cool. <laughs> I like that. Greg K says, zoning that porn theater next to that high school. <laughs> Call back. Again, yeah, my, my high school yeah. life. Yeah, very nice. And finally, Austin R says, putting a This Is Hell sticker over someone's Trump sticker <laughs> in May 2020. <laughs> That's what did it. Uh, you could have done that over a Biden or Hillary Clinton sticker, too. Those are that work right there. Hey, by the way, uh, Dan, have you seen that last Norm MacDonald special yet? Yeah, I did see it. How was it? 
I thought it was good. Uh, I didn't th- the panel afterwards. I could take or leave. But yeah, big fan. And you know, kinda, oh, they discussed like his life afterwards. Yeah, it was like Norm. Uh, they brought on like Letterman and Adam Sandler and David Spade and Molly Shannon and uh, Chappelle, and they're all kind of chatting about it. But it's a little bit of a snooze fest. But the, but the stand-up was pretty good. The stand-up itself was good, and as much as he's doing stand-up like completely alone because it was during lockdown, you know? Right, right. It kind of affects things, but also brings to, you know, throws into relief how uh, how studied he was. And, like, you know, he's doing all this stuff, like, really, really well, even without an audience. He used to blow me away on Weekend Updates simply because he used this formula that you can go back and watch any of his Weekend Updates. The, the punchline is the final word he says. <laughs> he never goes past... That Ugh. word to add like a prepositional phrase or add anything else, the punchline is the last word. Unless you count that smirk afterwards. Right, exactly, exactly. I think that's uh, sign language, so that does count as a word. Uh-huh. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question, Mel, wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question, Mel, at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to thisishellradio at gmail.com, but we must have your answer. Right now, or at least by the end of today's show, when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth, keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, this is hell. And if you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell, which generally plays live streams on Thursdays, but sometimes Fridays, depending on our schedule that week, depending on if I'm having life-saving surgery or not, become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell and get exclusive access to our weekly Patreon podcast with streams weekly and his podcast shortly after at the same place. Again, patreon.com slash thisishell. On Thursday's Patreon podcast, I'm going on vacation, and I will be sharing what that means to me as my family has been taking a vacation every summer at the same place for 64 Years, years before I was even a twinkle in my parents' eye, or as I was told, the mistake that they did not expect. So this week, I will share what this vacation, uh, which has reunited my family every year, means to me, and how the place we visit has changed, and how the world has changed, is intensely reflected in our vacation, from the way technology has changed to the way the idea of community has been altered, you guessed it, by neoliberalism and late-stage capitalism. While I will be on vacation for the next two weeks, the Patreon podcast will still feature new monologues by me throughout that time, including monologues on the media's climate change problem, especially at the New York Times, which is pretty f***ing hilarious. Sorry, I shouldn't have said that word. Sorry, Sebastian, you're going to have to delete that out. Uh, But it it was pretty hilarious at the New York Times over that week of heat that New York and Europe experienced earlier this month. And I'll have another monologue about on random thoughts from the past several years that I found scribbled on scraps of paper on Earth from a recently uh, recent cleaning of my home office also on patreon this week we will be sharing our december 2004 interview with a mother jones writer now i know you might be thinking mother jones dude who reads mother jones anymore well back in 2000 in the early 2000s mother jones was doing a lot of really good investigative journalism it stopped doing that but it it They were doing a lot of really good investigative journalism. In December uh, 2004, we talked with Mother Jones writer Michael Scherer, who beat the New York Times, Washington Post, and L.A. Times uh, on stories like U.S. uh, funding uh, air cargo companies that were tied to a notorious Russian 
arms trafficker, U.S. corporations using Native American companies as fronts to secure no-bid contracts, and the resignation of a top Defense Department official who tried to steer Iraq wireless communications contracts to his friends. And over the next couple of weeks, we will be playing our December 2009 interview with clinical psychologist Bruce E. Levine, who had just posted an alternate article that was entitled, Are Americans a Broken People? Why We've Stopped Fighting Back Against the Forces of Oppression, and our August 2007 conversation uh, on another article from Mother Jones, another investigation, a year-long investigation by Jennifer Gonnerman, who wrote the article, School of Shock, Electric Shocks, Withholding Food, Social Isolation, Why Are We Paying for autistic, mentally retarded, and emotionally troubled kids to be treated like enemy combatants. Uh, Jennifer is also the author of Life on the Outside, The Prison Odyssey of Elaine Bartlett, which is a finalist for the 2004 National Book Award. So that was, again, back when Mother Jones was doing some really great investigative work. If you do become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon, you not only get a special code word giving you a discount on all of our merchandise that you can find right now at thisishell.com when you click on support, but you also get access to over to all of our past Patreon podcasts, over 200 past Patreon podcasts with each and every one featuring a monologue by me and a classic interview that currently are not available anywhere else online. But you can only hear all of that by subscribing at patreon.com slash this is hell. Coming up, Jeff Dorchin with the moment of truth. The rest of your answers to this week's question from hell. And we'll be announcing this week's winner and we'll tell you what's happening on the show uh, when we return from uh, our two-week break. I mean, throughout the next couple of weeks, we're going to be having new shows hosted by our producers that will be featuring hand-picked interviews from our archives. So definitely tune in for that. And I'll tell you what's going to be happening on those shows as well as when we come back live from Hangover Country. This is hell. I know you have Hefe on the line. One, two, you know what to do. The Wendigo of Wobegon. Are there any real mysteries left? Clearly, we're not the doe-eyed innocent public we once were back when Howdy Doody and Alka-Seltzer ruled the popular zeitgeist. It's not enough for things to be true anymore. Now they must pass a more rigorous test, the test of believability in the laboratory of public opinion. And yet, somehow there still remain unsolved phenomena to boggle the jaded mind, shake us out of our trances, and remind us never to trust our senses, our reason, our memory, or the evidence. We live in a truly miraculous time when anything can be true, but only the best things can be super true. Most people born before the year 2000 can still remember when audio entertainment was supplied entirely by modulated radio waves tuned through antennae linked to cumbersome receivers. And those born before the year 1980 can even remember a program called A Prairie Home Companion and its host, Kurt Waldheim. Waldheim also played the main character, a mythical figure named Garrison Keeler, tyrannical, 
bloodthirsty, ruling his legendary kingdom of Lake Wobegon with an iron fist and an oversized forehead. There was a poorly-received film based on the program made by Robert Altman in the waning year of his talent about a revolution against that draconian leader, an uprising that ended in the utter destruction of the unhappy Minnesota town, supposedly erasing it from the earth. What Waldheim, Altman, and even Prince didn't know is that there was a real woebegone Minnesota it was a town on the southern shore of Wolf Bay on the outskirts of the Boundary Wilderness area. The actual town was a far cry from the one in the myths and legends. In place of modest provincial lackluster Lutheran descendants of Norwegian farmers and German mail-order brides, the residents of the actual Wobegon ran the gamut from bitter and depressed, to bitter, drunk and depressed Lutheran descendants of Norwegian farmers who settled the area and mated with the sex workers who settled in the area not long afterward. In the afterglow of the bumptious 1960s, the early 1970s, threw its cloak of stylish rage over the cities of the United States, but in Wobegon, as in other small towns in flyover country, the dissolving of the Beatles, Saigon, and the Nixon administration were barely noticeable, except to those at the Café Grand, the Perdition Roadhouse, or the Pandora's Box Café, who sat from early morning to mid-afternoon drinking bottomless coffee while perusing the national and international news in place of, or supplemental to, the local paper, the Mist County Compass. They were Midwest cosmopolitans drinking in the national malaise with their ever-refilled cups of java, and they passed that mood to their neighbors in order to give the town a clear awareness of itself as a small, insignificant victim of the Arab oil cartel's whims, the liberal project to ban sober body coverings, and the negative economic effects of the Symbionese Liberation Army. In short, Wobegon was ready for Reagan before anyone had even heard of Jimmy Carter. August 15th of 1974, exactly a week after the resignation of Richard M. Nixon had been a Meshuggah a day for Rabbi Inkfist of the Wobegon Lutheran Synagogue Bethan. His chippy in Miami was blackmailing him and he wasn't entirely sure his wife was clueless about his infidelities behind her back during their vacations in Florida together or his seasonal trips to so-called ecumenical conventions. If she was on him, could save him paying a good deal of cash to his mistress to keep her mouth shut. But then again, the rabbits and Mrs. Inkfist had grown more and more demanding in recent months as if she suspected him of something. In either event, he expected to pay dearly in financial and several other ways he imagined only vaguely, but with dread. He'd had a distasteful conversation with his chippy Juanita over the phone and several ambiguously hostile encounters during the course of the morning with the Rabbitson. 
After an unremarkable lunch of leftover mayonnaise, he plodded in a dark mood with his rod, reel, and tackle box to Krebs Box Bait Shop and Liquor Store, where he purchased two-fifths of wild old dirty grandpa and the last styrofoam cupful of the day's night crawlers. From there he went to where his aluminum boat with its ancient Evinrood motor waited for him at Olufsen's Landing. By three in the afternoon the rabbi was firmly soused and the single pike he'd caught had begun to bake in the bottom of the hull. By 8 p.m., as the sun threatened to set, he had spent two hours passed out. After the third unconscious hour, he awoke to a tug on his rod. Blearily, he landed another pike to join the first, which was covered with flies. Feeling queasy and triumphant in a limp, Way. He motored back in the direction of the landing by the light of the waning crescent moon. However, he was unable to find the boat launch. After what seemed to him an eternity, he opted to anchor in a cove and tie the boat off to a fallen pine protruding horizontally into the lake. Rabbi Inkfist struggled up half-submerged rocks and came ashore in the forest. He was afraid. He had no flashlight with him as he hadn't planned on returning in the dark. After walking a few yards into the woods, he decided he'd better spend the night in the boat. He didn't really know what he thought he would do in the woods anyway. He turned around to go back. It was then he heard the dissonant chorus of three dozen shrieking birds of prey. The piercing choir froze his heart in his chest. It, it was coming closer, the sound cleaving the night in bursts of ten or so seconds separated by about five. Now he heard a rapidly approaching creature ripping through the foliage, and then it was upon him. A wide mouthful of jagged teeth dominated its eyeless face, its limbs, skin stretched tight over bones, with scarcely the meat on them one might find on a starved and plucked flamingo, ended in long-fingered hands tipped with claws. A man-sized long-legged bat without wings, but with the vestige of a membrane in its inner elbow and under its arms, it tore into the rabbi's chest and shoulder with its teeth and claws. It shredded him as he took over the screaming now, feeling his flesh pulled from his bones. The rabbi was being eaten alive by a wendigo. The demonic predator of the forest, whispered about in terror by Ojibwe and Cree. Deputy Knut Tollerud and his partner, Junior Deputy Marge Gunderson, discovered what was left of the body 32 hours later. The remains of Rabbi Herbert Nathaniel Inkfist consisted of segments of shattered bone and skull that had been broken in half the tender brain within having been devoured. At first, law enforcement and animal authorities attributed the brutal attack to a misplaced grizzly bear. 
The attack heralded a series of them, though, culling those members of the Wobegon community who were slower and less apt to abstain from depressants. Several duck hunters swore to having seen the monstrous wendigo running, shrieking through the woods near the shoreline, chasing pot smokers. A class of schoolchildren testified that their teacher, Miss Dunderwood, was mauled by the wendigo right before their eyes, though it later came to light that the children had stoned her to death during a reenactment of a Shirley Jackson story and then eaten her by way of hastily reenacting a story by Lord Dunsany. You can hear more about Jackson and nothing about Dunsany in the archives of the Writer's Almanac. Local amateur photographer and multimedia artist Earl Dick Meyer caught an astonishingly clear snap of the monster, not at all like the distant, blurry ones of Sasquatch or Nessie, so beloved by the cryptozoological community. Unfortunately, within the week, that photo, as well as the negative and contact test prints, had been abducted by extraterrestrials. Wobegoners began to flee the area. Inside a year, the town's economy, business district, and infrastructure were in ruins. To put the final pineapple on the pizza, a sinkhole opened up, pulling all that was left of the town down to hell. The last remaining vestige of Wobegon was the sculpture by the, regrettably, Swedish artist Klaus Oldenburg of a giant hamburger made when he was stationed in the town for his own safety during World War II. It was made entirely of burlap bags, cemented like paper mache, and as such it was long considered the largest pile of burlap bags in the world. But it has since been eaten by goats and rats, both species who find burlap and dried wheat paste a delicacy. And that's a super true story of Wobegon, where all the women were Jezebels at heart, all the men were mopey suckers, and all the children were cannibals. And this has been an old-timey moment of truth. Good day! So uh, I, did, I have noticed in the past uh, that you never see pictures of both Garrison Keillor and Kurt Waldheim. You never see the two of no. them together. And it's because no, no. Kurt Waldheim, the former U.N. Uh, Secretary General, actually— And former played, Nazi. And former Nazi, actually <laughs> played— Because I always thought it was Max von Sydow playing— Kurt Waldheim Kurt playing Waldheim, no. playing Garrison Keillor. But That's you what never I thought saw it was. any of them together. Ever any of them together. Although it would have made a great cast for a new Three Stooges movie. You know they tried. They supposedly tried to get <laughs> Von Sydow for the for the uh, uh, Prairie Home Companion movie, but you know was busy playing Nazi or a Christ. He was an song. alter. He was too. He was involved in all kinds of alter egomania. He just couldn't get out of he couldn't figure out who he was greatest actor ever because he could play nazis or christ and 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 on in dune the 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 original the david lynch the original <laughs> yeah the I masterpiece guess. i'm not sure you can call it i love it despite it's the music by its toto that makes flaws. it <laughs> that's one of the things that make it's kind of the uh the dis the, the 70s disney-esque film quality of it <laughs> It's kind of amazing. But uh, also, I, I just think it's great. 
because it just makes you go nuts. Oh, Chuck, <laughs> yes. there's something I wanted to tell you. All right. That you mentioned. Well, first of all, hyperbole. I know. Not hyperbole. Hyper- well, you know that. Yeah, yeah. You know that. She corrected you at the yeah, beginning, and yeah, then yeah. you decided to do it again, do it just again. to drive the nail in further. Yes. God, there was something you mentioned that I was like, oh, no. And uh, I've been meaning to tell you this. Merchandise. It just seems, it seems like a verb to me. It seems to me that the, the noun is merchandise and the verb is Merchan- to merchandise. I see. Well, my, <laughs> name, my name comes from merchandise. Does it? Yes. Like merch, Merch, merchandise? Merch, yeah, merch, merch, merchandise. Yeah, yeah. I, well, Mertz was a great apothecary. It still is, isn't it? Uh, yes, but I have a story about that that's anti-Semitic that I'll share with you someday. Oh, thank God. <laughs> well, I'm hoping to show up at the, uh, at the party. September 17th thing, yeah. All right, well, it, l- let me... A lot uh, of things had to fall in place for that. But. Uh, we're up against the clock, so let me tell you okay. people about the party. And uh, great to hear your voice, and you're going to be doing Moments of Truth over the next couple of weeks while I'm not here? I am not. I'm going to take a break. Uh, okay. Ronaldo's taking a break, and so will I, because... Um, because because I'm old and yeah. I have to find new things to talk about that aren't Garrison Keeler and 1980s NPR radio. All right, Jeffy. Until next time. Yes. Stay beautiful. Okay. Keep staples out of your gut. <laughs> Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people. This is how Dan. Please remind us what is this week's question from Mel and tell us how the rest of our listeners are responding. Well, I'll remind you, it's um the consequences of which questionable action are you running away from? But I don't know. How much good it'll do us because we haven't had any other responses. Any more responses? Well, no. the answers I like the most were Austin R. saying, putting a This Is Hell sticker over someone's Trump bumper sticker in May of 2020. Genevieve saying, moving back to St. Louis. Walter B. saying, joining Facebook to see posts like this. Adam A. saying, not taking up running sooner. And Kelly H. saying, sex. It's always been sex. I just don't know which way to run anymore. That makes this week's winner... Austin R. for saying putting a This Is Hell sticker over someone's Trump bumper sticker in May of 2020. Congratulations, Austin. Just tell us what piece of This Is Hell swag you want from what is available at thisishell.com when you click on support, and we will get into the mail to you immediately. Again, uh, while my answer to this week's question from hell, the consequences of which questionable action you took are you running away from, That would be what you are listening to right now. This is hell. The show has been a questionable action from the get-go, as not only does the name turn off the few corporations and deep-pocketed national public radio networks, but unsurprisingly, media outlets, which greatly benefit from deregulated markets that have centralized their power while advocating for unbridled capitalism and canceling anyone who wants to even suggest they're doing exactly that. That, that, that. that doesn't have it a chance in hell of making anything resembling a living wage. But I, that I can run away from this is hell, or, or, or for how long, two weeks if I'm lucky, or uh, fast being that I just had 35 staples uh, removed from my belly. But emotionally, spiritually, mentally, whatever you want to call it, I will be running away for a fortnight. Thanks to everyone for sending in your answers to this week's question from hell. Thanks to our producers, Sebastian Vooper, Lindsey Gorey, Dan Hill. Thanks to Alexander Jerry for all of his behind-the-scenes work. Thanks to Jeff Dorchin for another moment of truth and Ronaldo Magaldi for Rotten History. Seb, Dan, and Lindsay will be hosting the show for the next couple of weeks as I'm away on my annual summer family vacation. Tune in Mondays, Tuesdays, and Wednesdays to hear them play interviews they've handpicked from our archives of over 
26 years of This Is Hell. And again, join us for the This Is Hell listener appreciation and 26th anniversary party, as well as the closing of This Is Art. On the final Saturday of summer, Saturday, September 17th, featuring live music, delicious food, and a raffle featuring uh, This Is Hell adjacent prizes. If you would like to donate a prize to be given away during this week's ra- or th- this year's raffle, Email us at chocolatethisishell.com and tell us what it is, or just send us your suggested gift to This Is Hell, 2251 West Devon Avenue, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. We'll be back with all new episodes on Tuesday, August 16th. And, Dan, I think we know uh, possible guests on our shows when we return. You might, but I didn't get the memo. All right. Well, I believe on Monday we will be talking uh, Monday, August, or sorry, Tuesday, August 16th. We'll be speaking with Stephen Thrasher, author of The Viral Underclass, The Human Toll When Inequality and Disease Collide, and Penny M. Von Eschen, author of Paradoxes of Nostalgia, Cold War Triumphalism and Global Disorders Since 1989. And finally, that week, we'll be closing out with Dr. Heather Berg, who will be on to discuss her Boston Review article, Freedom Not Benefits, Sex Workers Are Labor's Vanguard, The Left Ignores Them at Their Peril. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's set of shows. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying these simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. No. Uh, my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>